You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. So today we're going to be talking about an air of mystery. The heir of mystery is none other than Jesus Christ, but we are co-heirs with Christ, which makes us, too, an heir of this mystery. And obviously there's a, there's a play on words there. There's the heir of mystery, meaning like, this, like the spirit, like the breath, like the movement, and we are heirs, like the inheritors. Inheritors? One who, those who inherit? Yeah, we'll take it. So our call to worship this morning came from Psalm 24, which opens with this phrase, The earth is the Lord and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. So this, this reminds me that founding it on the seas and establishing it on the rivers, it reminds me of Paralanda, which is C.S. Lewis's second volume in his Space Trilogy. So Lewis's space trilogy is perhaps not as popular as his Chronicles of Narnia, the children's uh, literature. But in addition to writing children's literature, he also wrote literature for adults. And he has uh, three volumes that are kind of sci-fi. And this one, Paralanda, is the second installment of that, of that space trilogy. So uh, just in case you don't know it, let me just give you a little kind of summary of the storyline and how it goes. So the main character is Dr. Ransom, and he is a philologist, as, of course, if you wrote a novel, you would also choose your main character to be, right? A philologist? Do you know what, do you know what a philologist is? A philologist is a specialist in words, someone who studies languages. Uh, many people have actually speculated that Lewis's friend, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the uh, Lord of the Rings, was the kind of the, the model for, for Dr. Ransom. Um, I mean, he's, he's a lot like Lewis, too, for that matter. But there actually is a C.S. Lewis character in the story. Like, his character is there, so obviously that's him. So likely this is probably Tolkien. But Ransom travels to Venus, which in the story is called Paralanda. That's the name of the, of the planet. And he finds that the world is newly formed. And, the, and there are only two inhabitants kind of the queen of Paralanda and the king, kind of an Adam and Eve uh, um, characters. And neither Ransom nor the two inhabitants of Paralanda are wearing any clothing. But it's not, it's not problematic. There's, there's no kind of sexual temptation. It's the, it's the innocence of childhood. Like they're just carefree. There's no kind of sexual temptation or shame. It's definitely kind of Garden of Eden-esque. So as they move around on the planet, they go from the, these kind of floating uh, rafts of foliage, right? So the, there's, no, there's no fixed geographical space. Like every, everything's on the move. It's established on the seas and the rivers. And so Ransom kind of has a hard time at first getting his sea legs because everything's moving. There is one fixed place it's the only fixed geographical feature on the planet, and it is called Fixed Land. And it's the one and only place that the people of Paralanda, the king and queen, are forbidden to sleep. 
So the paradise is disrupted by the arrival of another professor, Dr. Weston, who was a character in the first novel, Out of the Silent Planet. And he was kind of, um, he was a bad guy in that one, but he's had somewhat of a, a redemption as he comes now, except he was just kind of utter, utterly kind of atheistic. Now he's very spiritual, but Ransom is trying to warn him. He's like, just because you're spiritual, that doesn't mean everything's okay. Like there are such things as evil spirits or bad spirits. And he's like, no, no. I used to believe I was just a materialist, but now I believe in more. Things are enchanted, except Weston ends up being possessed by evil. And he tries to convince the queen that she needs to spend the night on fixed land. And so you kind of see, as Lewis often does, um, his symbolism is a little bit overt, right? Uh, so if you, if you like really kind of sophisticated um, nuanced literature. Maybe Lewis isn't the best person for you, right? He kind of hits it on the nose. Like, there's no, no guessing who Aslan is, right? In the, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, he's the Christ figure. So much the same way here. But in any case, um, Ransom, who we're told his name means son of Randolph, which is kind of quintessential Tolkien if you, if you follow him and the way he writes, but then God tells him that it's, his name is more than just meaning the son of Randolph. He will function as the ransom. And so in this story, ransom kind of plays the Christ figure. And, and I know that those ransom theories of atonement can be a bit problematic, like who's being paid and what's being paid and those things. Don't, don't carry those analogies too far. They're analogies. And analogies are, are good because they say it's similar to this. But it, that's, that's the end of it. It's just similar to. It's not a, it's not a perfect fit. But this, the part that does fit, the part in the way in which it is similar, is that he's ready to kind of sacrifice his own life for the sake of the other, right? He's ready to give. Now, he thinks that he needs to kind of protect the queen of Paralanda by convincing her that Weston is wrong and that she needs to follow the rules and stay off of fixed land. But he keeps losing the arguments. Like Weston's rhetoric and his polemic, his, his argumentation is just too strong for him. So kind of uncharacteristic of a philologist, he's convinced that he's going to have to engage Weston kind of in a, in a physical conflict, which he ends up doing and winning. But in the process, his own heel is kind of forever damaged. Once again, not the subtlest of references, but it sounds to me a lot like Genesis 3 and the promise to Eve that she would give birth to a son, that her son would save the world, but that he would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. You've heard that story before? I guess Lewis had also heard that story before, <laughs> right? So that's just the way he writes. So again, I, I enjoy Lewis. I enjoy his fiction, even if it's, it's somewhat overt. But for me, one of the things I love about Paralanda is the way in which it does overlap with this interesting phrase at the beginning of Psalm 24, that the world, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and on it, and he has established it on rivers and on seas. Now, I don't, I'm, I'm not a, a contractor. 
but I am the son of one, right? So when I went to seminary, people used to always ask me, where does your dad pastor? And I would say, my dad's not a pastor. And they're like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, but he's a carpenter. And as far as I've heard, sons of carpenters do well in ministry. <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm not a contractor, but dad was. And I'm pretty sure trying to establish something on rivers and seas is not the surest of foundations. Like if you're going to build something, you might want to build it on fixed land. That seems like that would be right. Not establishing it on seas and rivers. But then... God's way of doing things often is different than our way of doing things. We're told in John 3, 8 that the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Our God is not Aristotle's unmoved mover, the one who is and was and will be. Our God, as Clark Pinnock, the Baptist theologian, says, is the most moved mover. The cloud by day, the fire by night. We serve a living God. A kind of wild and woolly God. A God that will surprise you. A God that you know truly, but you don't know fully. A God who is more and better and beyond what you could hope or imagine or think. John says this too later in the gospel. He says, when the spirit of the truth comes, it will guide you into all truth, for it speaks not of its own, but it will speak whatever it hears, and the spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. I love, love, love this imagery of, of movement, of living, of motion that we get from the psalmist and from Lewis. Building on the seas and the rivers is, represents kind of maybe one of the earliest forms of Christian symbolism. Like early, early, early in the, in the Christian church, um, we use the symbol of the fishing boat. So this, uh, this symbol here is a symbol for the World Council of Churches. It's kind of the largest ecumenical group uh, in the world. Um, Oikumene is a Greek word that means all the inhabitants of the earth or the whole inhabited world, right? It's where we get the term ecumenical. It's the, it is the spirit that I think Oasis has, has always had and I pray always will have, that it is a place for everyone. It is a place for anyone, right? And this idea that the, the church is like a boat and it sits on the seas of life and God is the wind that animates the boat. And so we're on the move. And the problem is often with our, with our dogma and with our doctrines, we try too hard to nail things down. We long to live on fixed land. We want things to be the same. We want to know and we want to be certain and we want to be able to kind of tell people that's how it is and that's how it always will be. Except that that would be great if God lived in some kind of stationary place. But God's not like that. That's not the God who's been revealed to us. God is leading his people through the wilderness He's leading us through life. He's leading us through history. He is the, 
the uh, cloud by day and the fire by night. And to try and anticipate that, that somehow God would reach some point and just sit down and say, okay, now we're here. That, I think, is a, is a bad imagination. So <clears throat> our God, as I said, is a mystery. Our God cannot be domesticated. And it is this mystery that I think Paul is writing about in this passage that Micah read for us. In fact, I'd like for us to look at it again. Paul writes about a great mystery of God's will in his letter to the Ephesians. And I've come to believe that paying very close attention to the pronouns and to their antecedents, that something will be revealed in this text that otherwise isn't. So very quickly, I had read this text for years thinking that Paul, when he said us, that included me as a Christian, and then when he said you, he was talking about non-Christians or potentially new Christians who would come in. So I was always reading it as kind of a 20th century, back in the day, or maybe a 21st century kind of evangelical, conservative, Pentecostal Christian guy, right? But I've, I've, been, I've come to believe that I should read it a little differently. And so I, I want you to, uh, we focused on the way we've paginated the text here for you today on those pronouns. And I think when Paul says initially here, we or our or us, he's not talking about just people of God in general or Christians or him and his friends. When he says we or our us, I think he's talking about the Hebrews, God's chosen people. Like he's telling the story of salvation, what theologians would call salvation history. So let's look at these texts. This is, this is what we just read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. So let's pause right there before we move on. All of those things, the our Lord Jesus and blessed us in Christ and chose us in Christ, I believe again is a reference to a particular people group. Like he chose Abraham. He didn't choose Charlie or Richard, right, or Joe. He chose Abraham, right? And Abraham's descendants became the Hebrews. They didn't become the Egyptians or the Ammonites or the Edomites or the Philistines or the Canaanites or the Hittites or the, I don't know, the Greeks or the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, right, the Alabamians, <laughs> Didn't become any of those folks. It became the Hebrews. Now, this next bit. He destined us, again, that's that same group, for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So that idea of adoption applies first and foremost to the Jews. They were adopted. They are adopted into the family of God. They weren't born that way. The prophet Ezekiel will say it like this, that uh, Israel was like a baby, newborn baby, like laying in its, in its birth fluids. Forgive the, the graphicness of this. Blame, it, blame Ezekiel. <laughs> laying in its birth fluids with its umbilical cord still yet uncut. 
crying, and God passed by and said, you will be mine. Right? God adopts Israel. And so that's initially what Paul is talking about here. Then he says this. In him we, and again, I still think he's talking about these, this group of people, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will. We're going to come back to that. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things, in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's a mystery that what God was doing in Christ was going to gather up all things in heaven and earth into him. Not, not just the Jews to save them and, you know, evil would reign or rule in the rest of the world or, or God's judgment would come and destroy the rest of the world. He'd just kind of save the Jews. But here's the mystery Right, that a plan of salvation for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. All right, next verse. In Christ we, and again, this is still Paul and his people, right? His people group, the Hebrews, the Jews. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, catch this, we who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live according to his glory. I mean, that really convinces me that this is what's going on. We who were the first to set our hope on Christ. Were, who were the ones who were the first to set their hope on Christ? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their children. They were the first to set their hope. And that's what has happened. But there's... A mystery. This is not fixed land. This is a kingdom of God established on the seas and rivers. This is a living and wild God who's going to do something more than what they could have expected. Up to this point, I take Paul to be telling us about the voyage of the Hebrews, God's chosen people, the story of salvation. All these things being chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven is the work of Christ for his predestined people. The mystery, the real surprise, is that the Messiah is not only the king of Israel, but the savior of the world. And it's at this point, it's verse 13, that his pronouns shift. He goes from first person plural, telling the story of the Hebrews, to now second person plural, talking about a new group of people who've been included. He says this, in him, you, and that's a you plural, right? You can't tell it in the English there, but if this was written in colloquial English in the South, it'd say y'all, right? In him, y'all also. When y'all had heard the word of truth, the gospel of y'all salvation, you had believed in him and were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about the Ephesians. The Gentiles, those who had not been chosen, but who are now included in the inheritance of Christ, who is the heir of mystery, so that now we are co-heirs of this mystery. 
Paul will then go on to say that now we have inheritance and that in verse 14, I take that we to be a new we, a newly formed group of people, all those who are in Christ. This is very similar to what Paul had written earlier in his life when he wrote to the Romans. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God to salvation first to the Jew and then to the Greek. We've talked about that before, right? That that doesn't represent kind of um, a double standard. Right, that the Jews are God's first chosen people, and you know we're not Jews, but we we kind of get chosen anyway, right? Kind of second class citizens in the kingdom. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom. Everyone's included, and we're all included by faith in Christ. But this has worked in history; it has come to us kind of through time. And so Paul's making this same argument here, I believe. So who is to say where God might lead us next? Being open to new things is essential to following this God. We are the boat in the sea of life, the ship on the ocean of history. God is the wind animating our moves. Let's put up our sails. Look, if, if we, if Peter had taken the same approach to Scripture that we often take to Scripture, he would have never obeyed God when God said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Like, <clears throat> there was a rule that you should circumcise your, your sons. It was a covenant between God and Abraham. And then it was written as, and then practiced by the Jews. And then the early Christians come to believe that you don't have to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. There were things that you were supposed to eat and not eat, right? And that's what Peter was up against. Those things that you were supposed to eat and not eat were written down in the scriptures. Yet he has a vision that says, I need you to behave otherwise. If Peter and Paul and the other early Christians had adopted the same hermeneutic, the same way that we read text, they would have never been open to where God was leading them. As we quoted in that passage in John, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. Meaning that if we're going to be the people of God, we have to be prepared to, to move. We can't sit. We are the heirs of a mystery. And that mystery is that Christ is bigger we serve a universal Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I'm not here to tell you today that I know what the next thing is that God is leading us to. But I am here, am here to tell you today that unless we're prepared to change, unless we're prepared to move, then we're not prepared to follow God. God is living and God is moving and God is leading us if we will follow. It's how the Hebrews made it through the wilderness. It's how the early church was able to discern what the Spirit was telling them about the life of Christ. And it's exactly how I think we are called to live today. It's not about 
nailing things down and, and, and that being the way it always will be. Because things change. In Deuteronomy, it says, if you're a eunuch, you can't come into the tabernacle. Right? In Isaiah, it says, in God's temple, everybody's welcomed, especially the eunuchs. Well, did Isaiah not read Deuteronomy? You think Isaiah forgot about that part of Deuteronomy? Or do you think that maybe in the leading of God, they were learning things they hadn't learned before? Again, we know God truly, but we do not know God fully. There is more to know of God than what we know. We tell this in jokes sometimes, right? We talk about heaven and talk about when we get there that, you know, we'll be surprised who we see. And, and we're like, you know, the Pentecostals over here, they're kind of loud. And you got to tell them to be quiet because, you know, you don't want the Baptists to hear them because they think they're the only ones that are here. <laughs> you know, it's funny. haha. <laughs> I get it. I can laugh at that too. But if I'm, but if I'm being serious for a moment... If I'm being serious for a moment, I'm an heir of a mystery. That mystery is Christ. And Christ is here to save the world. How does it say it in that one verse? It said, see if I can find it. It says this. With all wisdom and insight, he, God, the Lord God Almighty, has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his good pleasure, he set forth in Christ. So this is the mystery of God's will that he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So our response, I think, is not to, to build on some firm foundation. Like, I think Lewis's Paralanda can be helpful for us. I know that's just a story, but I, I think there's something to learn here, right? That it's not about spending the night on fixed land. It's about being faithful to God and a God who's on the move, right? So our response is not to say, well, now we got it, and we can measure whether or not you have it or not. And we know whether or not to exclude you or to include you based on our measurements. But rather, the next verse from that, that opening verse that says, um, The earth is the Lord and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established on the rivers. It says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord except for the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? I'm all over these notes. <laughs> who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, and do not swear deceitfully. That is who we are. We are those people. Too often we imagine that we serve the role as judge. When Jesus is the judge, we should let Jesus do that work. And our role is the role of witness. We are to bear witness. We are to bear witness to Jesus. 
for Jesus is the truth. So I, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And that truth is that I know what Christ has done in my life. He saved me. He's redeemed me. He's delivered me. I bear witness to that truth. That's my job. That's your job. We are witnesses. We have to stop this judgment thing and let Jesus handle that. He is a faithful judge. He can play that role. I, last week, I mentioned this story from when I was in seminary. I'd gone to this all-night prayer meeting. Remember that story? For those of you who are here. But that lesson applies here too, right? That when we serve, when we wash the feet of another, it cleans our hands. Like we get clean in the process of serving. And who can ascend the hill of the Lord except the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? Like that's how we know we are prepared to follow this living God who's on the move, right? Like Ransom, we need some sea legs too. What's beautiful about that story is they prevent happening on Paralanda what had happened on earth. You need to read the whole trilogy to kind of follow that about. But, but they, they don't have a fall. They avert it. Earth, on the other hand, has had it out of this silent planet. It kind of got ostracized by the rest of the planets, but that's in the first novel. I'll let you read it. But I, wanna, I want to reemphasize this point. You can't wait until you get your life in order and then serve God. Because if you're waiting till you get your life in order, you'll never end up serving God because you'll never feel like you have your life in order. There's, there'll always be something else you're waiting on. Right? You might be waiting to graduate high school. You might be waiting to go to college. You might be waiting to get married. You might be waiting to have kids. You might be waiting to get that, you know, that second house. You might be waiting to get that second kid. You might be waiting to get that promotion. You might be waiting to get this. You might be waiting to get that. You're always looking. That's what we do, right? We're always looking for that next thing. You guys pray for me. I turned 50 this past week. I know that's a shocker for you. You thought I was 40. I don't know why you're laughing. But it does. It gives us some, some those, those kind of zero birthdays give us some time to reflect and to think about such things. I know this. It's not, it's not that we get our lives together and then we serve God. It's as we're serving God, our lives are put together. It's as we wash the feet of others, it's as we serve them that God cleanses us. It doesn't just clean our hands, it purifies our hearts. And with clean hands and pure hearts, we're ready to follow a living God. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.